Today we heard the sad news of the passing away of one forest Ajan, Bu Bunmi. Bu Bunmi was uh, perhaps the most senior or disciple of Tanajan Mahabua. He passed away today, aged 91. So he'd been a monk for 71 years and was considered to be a well-practiced monk, reputed to be an arahant. I was fortunate to pay respects to him of quite a few times over the years. The last couple of years he'd been living in Yasoton near his birth village. Yasoton is now a, a province of Thailand. It used to be part of Ubon Rajatani. Ubon is famous for having been the birthplace of many enlightened masters. Uh, so the last couple of years he was living at what uh, Bar Silapon in Yasoton and he built a chedi there. So one of the last acts he did before he died. And this chedi was locally known as the chedi uh, Bun. The Chedi of One with Merit, which is probably a play on his name, which is Bunmi or Merit Have. Pumi Bun is uh, one who has merit, and he was saying that this Chedi was built to revere those with merit, so the Buddha. That houses relics of the Buddha and uh, Savakas, enlightened Savakas of the Buddha, relics that had been offered to him and had been collected over the years were installed in this Chetia. But he also said that anyone who helped to build the Chetia had merit for both the relics of the bones of those enlightened masters uh, were what's left of people with merit and those who made the chedi to house them had merit. In similar fashion to uh, the disciples of Lumpo Cha, he, uh, Lumpo Bunmi was renowned for his wisdom, his ability to give Dhamma talks, explain the Dhamma very well. Uh, but at the same time, he was an extremely humble bhikkhu, you might say, ordinary bhikkhu. And that was uh, something you noticed, I noticed about him over the years. So I first met him about 30 years ago, so he'd already have been about 60 years old 
already had a reputation for being enlightened. Had his own monastery uh, in those days. It was, I think, what Nongkun up in Udon. Um, but that I can still remember arriving the very first time I met him. He was with some of his monks sweeping leaves. It was late afternoon and the novices were making little piles of leaves and setting fire to them, burning them to get rid of the, the leaves in the forecourt of the monastery. And when we arrived, you couldn't tell which monk was Lumpu Bunmi because all the monks, including him, were sweeping and doing the same job. And if you consider he was already by then 40 reigns, when he first ordained was the year Ajahn Lumpur Man died. So I even met Lumpur Man and spent a little bit of time with him. So already by then he was about 60 years old, 40 reigns. He was just sweeping the leaves with the other monks. So very humble, very ordinary. And he quietly beckoned to an assistant monk to receive us and take us to the dying shed, which is the traditional place for a refreshment in the afternoon in a forest monastery where they boil water and there's some uh, tea and coffee and other things kept there. So we were offered some drinks while the other monks cleaned up and Lumpubunmi cleaned up and then he received us at his kuti and gave us a very nice Dhamma discussion. And he was well known for being skilled at explaining the Dhamma, where some other teachers were sometimes known for different their different skills in meditation or building. He was known for his wisdom and his skill in explaining aspects of the practice. And often even Lungda Mahabua, his own teacher, would direct monks and lay people to go and find Lumpobunmi for an explanation of a, a point of Dhamma. But at the same time he was very humble. He didn't promote himself as a teacher. He taught when there was an occasion, but if there was no occasion he was quite happy to be just another monk, as it were. As many of Lungtam Haabua's disciples, as with Lumpur Cha, who similar in their own monastery, they could be the teacher and present the Dhamma and the Vinaya. Uh, but outside of their monastery, they're quite happy not to travel much, not to teach much. They still, while Lungtam Haabua was still alive, or while Lumpur Cha was alive, they still looked to him as the teacher the leader of the Sangha. So somewhat reminiscent of um, Venerable Asaji in the time of the Buddha, who, uh, Upatissa, who became Venerable Sariputta when he met Venerable Asaji, even though Asaji was already enlightened, an arahant, he deferred to the Buddha 
to teach Upatisa and said, oh, you know, I'm not the teacher when Upatisa approached him. It's a good reflection on our life that although on the one hand sometimes as we become more senior we may take up positions of responsibility help to run monasteries, give teachings or maybe travel around these days it's not unusual for monks to travel around the world uh, to appear in books on YouTube and so on as and become prominent Buddhist teachers, meditation teachers but at the same time there's also that side of our life where we're just humble monks and we always will be just another bhikkhu that's the nature of our practice we can be a teacher but we can also just be another bhikkhu sitting in line and even when you get older it's possible you can be 50, 60 years old the sangha is so large that there could be an occasion where you go and you're still not anywhere near the head of the line and it reminds you you are just another bhikkhu which is the purpose of our practice we're not here to become famous or powerful or influential or rich or just have large numbers of supporters we're here to practice the Dhamma, the Vinaya to gain insight that will liberate our hearts from the defilements and the causes of suffering so it may happen that we do become more well known in our practice but that's never the goal and as many monks will let you know it can even be a problem or an obstacle when you wish to meditate and practice then people demand your time your attention so it's something you have to learn how to manage Bodhmi was uh, one who seemed to manage that well and whenever I visited him with monks from here or before that was always uh, he was one who encouraged wise reflection on the Dhamma obviously the keeping of the Vinaya and what we call the Korwat the monastic rules and regulations he would uphold them himself and encourage monks to uphold them as a foundation for the practice and the development of Sati with meditation objects such as Buddha or the breath and then the development of wise reflection and he sometimes referred to as a monk who encouraged this practice which has been become to be known as uh, wisdom developing samadhi panya uh, developing samadhi using the reflective ability of the mind or wise reflection as a vehicle for developing understanding of the Four Noble Truths in daily life but always in conjunction with Sati and Sampajanya 
sometimes people hear the term wisdom developing samadhi and may think it's more of just an intellectual approach to the development of the mind through meditation. <clears throat> but discussing this with Lumpabunmi once, he pointed out that even what we call wisdom developing samadhi begins with the first foundation of mindfulness, sati directed to the body. And wisdom isn't merely intellectual knowledge, even though that has a role to play in our practice and is probably what brought many of us to the Buddhist teachings, reading, hearing talks. But in terms of bhavana, the development of the mind and the realization of the Four Noble Truths, wisdom, the development of wisdom begins with the first foundation of mindfulness in the body. Directing the mind to be mindful, to recollect the body, to see the body as the body. So whether it's the practice of anapanasati, focusing on the breathing, the sensation of the in-breath, the out-breath, or the air element, it's really just focusing on air moving in and out of the body, or the focusing of the mind, directing the mind to be mindful of posture, or recollecting the 32 parts, or the 10 the super meditations or the four elements. These are all aspects of the first foundation of mindfulness. And in themselves, they're all samatha, what we call samatha practices, but they also lead directly on to the arising of wisdom as well. As Lumpur Cha used to point out, sati, samadhi, and panya, wisdom, <coughs> they all arise in the same mind. They're all linked. They're different factors of the same path. And on paper we separate them out, but in practice, your know, wisdom is supporting the practice of mindfulness, and mindfulness is supporting the practice of wisdom. When we say mindfulness or sati, we mean sampajanya as well, clear comprehension. In the forest tradition we talk a lot about the dry sikar, the practice of sila, samadhi, prapanya. That's an abbreviation of the Eightfold Path. But of course the Eightfold Path, when you look at it, begins with sammaditi, which is considered a, a factor of wisdom. So our practice really begins with wisdom, which we gain from two main sources, from the outside, from teachers, and from the inside, from the practice of wise reflection, yoniso manasikara. This is why it's so valuable in the world to have wise teachers, such as 
หลวงปู่บุญมี for example there is such a rare unique resource in this world enlightened monks who have trained themselves to actually penetrate and realize the four noble truths no longer do they speak just from memory from books but they've actually done the practice and it's a credit to them you know, many of lumpo bunmi's generation didn't have much formal education maybe left school at the age of 11 or 12 it's quite common but just read and write had the basic knowledge of uh, worldly education and yet became fully enlightened arahants very wise and able to see through whatever problem was presented to them in the course of their life say people with their problems would come to talk to such a teacher just problems in running a monastery running a sangha dealing with the world great they displayed great wisdom and where's that come from what's come through the practice of bhavana the establishing of their own heart and mind in right view so these teachers are invaluable in our practice the opportunity to hear their teachings either read them in books hear them on tapes or sometimes meet them in person this is something that's possibly overlooked or underestimated all the time the value of great forest masters in the world say in thailand in particular they've had a huge but very silent almost anonymous influence on the culture on the society bringing a great strength and stability to society perhaps these days that's more and more missed or overlooked because they're these great monks don't promote themselves as personalities in the normal way that society members of society might do they're not seeking fame and fortune like a politician or a celebrity or a businessman they're just practicing the eightfold path with wisdom you know, often that influence is is not recognized immediately but if you were to suddenly remove them all from society say a society like thailand there would be it'd be like turning the light off suddenly there'd be great darkness and all that subtle and sometimes direct influence bringing the four noble truths to life bringing samadhi into society through their teachings through their example all of that would be lost so the role of kalyana mitta mm-hmm. well practiced monks in our practices samanas as bhikkhus and also in society as a whole is invaluable in a well practiced monk constantly brings you back to the dhamma to the vinaya you know, they practice the vinaya and provide a good example they give you a a reason why it's worth keeping the vinaya when at first sometimes it's challenging <coughs> and they explain the dhamma 
They explain how to practice. They remind us to, you know, practice simplicity. Lumpabunmi, as I said, is very obviously a very simple monk. He didn't collect a lot of wealth. It's the monastery he lived in. When I went several on several occasions, you know, had buildings like our monastery, you know, as practical facilities that are useful for the monks and the lay visitors, lay residents, but it wasn't uh, a monastery that was cluttered with unnecessary buildings or hadn't put a lot of effort into buildings that were very glamorous, ornate buildings. The buildings were built practically strong. They served a purpose just to support the practice, the practice of the, the Sangha living there. And these well-practiced monks, you know, they're a reminder of how we practice. Because even in the Sangha in monasteries, you know, we can get lost in the direction we take. You know, sometimes monasteries become institutions. and Monks can be, say, obsessed with building very large or ornate buildings and the fundraising that requires. Or monks can be perhaps a little obsessed with helping society, going out and doing all kinds of projects which may seem worthy but may lead them to compromise their vinaya or their training and lose track of their meditation practice. So the forest ajans have played a very important role to remind us, to link us right back to the time of the Buddha. How did the Buddha live? The Buddha himself lived in the forest practiced in the forest. He lived in simplicity. He still walked Bindabhat and walked around India. He didn't ride on a chariot or on an elephant or whatever. He lived simply. In the time of the Buddha, when there was a meeting of the Sangha, newcomers to the monastery wouldn't at first be able to recognize which monk was the Buddha, because he sat and looked much the same as the other monks. Just as when I first went to see Lumpur Bunmi, I couldn't work out which one was Lumpur Bunmi until he approached us and started talking. And that's the flavor of the forest monk. He doesn't put on airs and graces or present himself as somebody important to the world. He's just another bhikkhu. Whether you're one vasa or fifty vasas. It doesn't really matter. The practice remains the same. What changes maybe is the mind becomes comfortable and happy in the practice. Comfortable with the rules, comfortable with the meditation, comfortable with the aspirations, comfortable with the simplicity, frugality and so on. So... This is where they become a great blessing to the world. You to have people who have dedicated their lives to the Sangha, to the practice, and have been good examples through their good practice. And the world needs that, particularly the Buddhist world and the Sangha needs that. You know, remind a constant reminder of the right way to practice. And then the world needs it. 
they need to be reminded that you know when they get lost in their pursuit of material wealth and fame and fortune is not really the way to true and lasting happiness and so they see a monk you know that's reminding them them of that reminding them of the spiritual path and at first that can cause some unhappiness for lay people if somebody is particularly worldly or they have they have a lot of ambition you know a monk can seem to be like a rejection of that so they might even be annoyed hearing about or seeing a monk that seems to go against the monk seems to go against everything they stand for and believe in but the monk has the value of patience compassion kindness and wisdom maybe over time that wisdom shines through you know, we, we know it's the the brightest light the brightest radiance in the world is the radiance of wisdom the mind of wisdom the monk is a kalyanamitta even to people who might not immediately like the monk so it's just reminding them planting a seed that maybe there is some deeper happiness than just fame fortune uh, sort of worldly success Of course, the, the role of the Kalyanamitta is to help us and each individual to turn their attention back to themselves and develop the second part of right view, which is Yoniso Manasikara. And Lumpabunmi was a very um, strong proponent of that. Every time I, I heard his, him speak Dhamma and talk about the, the development of wise reflection using that wisely reflecting on the use of the requisites wisely reflecting on the practice of Vinaya to develop wholesome, skillful behavior in daily life and to abandon unwholesome, unrestrained behavior and then the development of wisdom applied to the four foundations of mindfulness as we develop mindfulness we develop wisdom together. We wisely, wisely reflect on the nature of this body. In this body that we inhabit, it's impermanent. It's changing. It will die. And that's its nature. So wisely reflecting, we bring the mind to pay attention to that, to the way it is. And this has a way of liberating the mind from its false aspirations, delusions and identification with the body as a self, a person, a being that we cling to. And wise reflection is something we practice over and over again, directing our wisdom to the body, to the sense faculties, and the impermanent nature of the senses, how they the sights, the sounds, the taste, the smell, the touch, arising and ceasing all the time. And all the pleasure and pain or neutral feelings that we receive from these sense impressions, again, arising and ceasing all the time. And when we direct our wisdom faculty to reflect on this, you're seeing that 
ultimately there's no person. There's, a, there's an eye, there's a sight or a form that is seen, and then eye consciousness arises. But that's not a person, it's a process. You know, when we shine the light of wisdom onto this process, we're recognizing that what we unconsciously, unwittingly identify with all the time as, as me, myself, you know, that's a mistaken view. And as long as there's a healthy eye and there's light, well, we'll have this consciousness of seeing arising, but it's not a person. Even the pleasure and pain we experience, that's not a person or a being. This is just a conditioning process. You know, pleasant sights lead to pleasure. Unpleasant sights lead to displeasure. This is partly based on perception or sanya as well, which again is not a person. It's a process, a conditioning process made up of different factors. So we're seeing this. The consciousness arises, there's pleasure, there's pain, feeling, there's sanya, which helps to determine whether it is pleasant or unpleasant. I seem to remember Lumpur Bunmi talking about this, when you see a person, that seeing takes place. You know, if that person, your memory, associates them as being a friend, well, there'll be pleasure arising. But if you see that person as an enemy, based on your sanya, someone you don't like, well, displeasure will arise when you see them. That is just natural causes and conditions based on your sanya that you've identified with as friend or foe, and then the feeling that arises, pleasant or unpleasant. Wise reflection is undoing that process, unwinding, unraveling it, so you can see more clearly that there is, there's a, a certain emptiness in it. In the emptiness meaning we don't automatically have to identify with the seeing, the feeling, the perception, and maybe the mental proliferation that comes from the perception. Wise reflection can unravel this process for us. This is how we're training ourselves. Wisely reflecting on our sense contact, the feeling, the perceptions that arise, and see the suffering that comes from it, you know, the, the mental proliferation based on craving and attachment. It's suffering, it leads to suffering. When we see dukkha, see suffering as suffering, then wisdom again wants to end that suffering. It's just, it's just common sense. Nobody wants to suffer. So wisdom has this illuminating effect. It illuminates to us, oh, that's where I'm suffering. I'm grasping at the perception. Really, I should just let it be. That's where wisdom is leading to, say, equanimity or detachment dispassion. The sense contact and the experience is still taking place, but wisdom is wanting to remove suffering from the experience. There's a letting go, a giving up of the, the grasping and the identification with, with the perception. 
in this case the perception of a person as a friend or a foe, you just know the perception as arising and ceasing. It's not really a you or me or a person, it's just a perception. When wisdom sees that, clearly, then you let go and the mind is peaceful. So we're learning to reflect on our behavior, wisely reflecting with mindfulness, with effort. And this is the heart of our meditation, the heart of our practice. And these teachers that we meet over our life as monks, whether it's here or when we visit other monasteries, you know, this is the kind of practice they're encouraging. They may have their particular style and character, but the message is often much the same. Another one, another teaching I remember Lumpur Bunmi giving when we first went with a group of monks from here. He said, you know, your disciples of Ajahn Chah, you've heard the good Dhamma already. You don't need me to, you don't need to hear it from me. Meaning he recognized Ajahn Chah as a very good teacher and adequate teacher. If you think about it, a lot of the teachings we hear, we do hear over and over again. We hear them from readings, from recordings, from live talks, from myself, from other teachers. Often the words and the teachings are pointing to much the same thing. But you'll notice how it's your state of mind will vary from time to time. Sometimes when you visit a, a teacher with a, a reputation as, as being a well-practiced monk, there's a certain atmosphere. Lumpur Bunmi's monastery was very clean, tidy, peaceful atmosphere. You go there and then you, you, you take an interest in what that teacher has to say because the atmosphere is good. His personality is very peaceful and a certain power to his presence so then the words he says maybe they are words you've heard before but they can still penetrate into your heart maybe if the conditions are right they can bring 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 forth some wise reflection and some insight it's important to see this again this is part of the process is that we don't always have to look for new or special secret mystical teachings or teachers often the teachings we hear are much the same over and over again just slightly different versions of the same thing teachings on the vinaya teachings on meditation techniques teachings on wisdom wise reflection different explanations of the four noble truths but sometimes the mind is just in the right mood, the atmosphere is right, the conditions are right, and it has its effect. Maybe we remember the words, or the insight that arises leads to a sense of clearing the mind, clarity, letting go of the mental proliferation. We experience a kind of peace, or what we call emptiness. The emptiness 
comes with the arising of mindfulness and wisdom is not an empty feeling, meaning something that's unpleasant or a form of depression. It's emptiness, meaning empty of the sense of self. The clarity that arises, the the brightness of wisdom illuminating your experience at that time clears away the clutter, the mental proliferation, the emotions, the worries, the doubts that may normally beset us. Sometimes the mind is just tired of thinking and worrying and attaching, so it's willing to put that down. Or sometimes it's just an angle that hearing the Dhamma gives one a new angle and leads the mind to just want to let go. There's often very ordinary teachings that we've heard before, but suddenly the mind mindfulness is there. The supportive conditions are right, so wise reflection arises. And that teaching can have a very powerful effect on the mind. Maybe it's something you remember for the rest of your life. Your true wisdom is timeless, so often it stays with you. Whether it's a, a few words just a certain experience, a situation that arose, or an experience that seemed to bring you to the Dhamma, (coughs) can stay with you for a long time. And it brings clarity. It clears the mind out. We have a little taste of Nibbāna, a taste of letting go, a taste of the peaceful mind. If you keep having those tastes, even if it's once in a while, this is a very powerful conditioning process and has a powerful conditioning effect on your mind. Little by little you're inclining towards Dhamma and your mind is more willing to set aside its normal infatuation with the world and attachment with, to the world. After a while it's the Dhamma that becomes more important. And the worldly happiness and the worldly obsessions that we have become less important. This is how all those teachers that we've met, like Lumpur Bunmi, practice, you know, gradually train their mind persistently with effort to the point where they change from what we say unenlightened, untrained, worldly mind to the mind of an area, a no a noble one. So while it's sad that uh, these teachers, when the time comes, they pass away, but it's also a time to reflect on their their role, say, their role in our, our life, a role in the Buddhist community as a whole, and to value and appreciate that there are good teachers around or have been good teachers around and there still are good teachers around and they have a vital role to play in our practice so tonight is uh, suppositor it's Patimoka soon we'll chant the Patimoka and devote ourselves to some practice and uh, recollect our teachers recollect the Buddha the Dhamma the Sangha I'll just say that much tonight.